I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, chickens, and Thasians to episode 28 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Jarman. And I'm Steve. As always, we are here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And Jarman, what are those? Those are The Muppets and Star Trek. And we do one-to-one reviews of The Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. And this week, we have special Muppet Show with even specialer guest host, (laughs) John Cleese. And the original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. This is really a special episode, folks. It is. They're all special. That's right. And we have some feedback from our last uh, time we recorded. This is from Carrie or Care Bear Lib on Twitter. And she says there is a podcast that compares Muppet Show episodes to Star Trek TOS episodes, question mark, exclamation point, Muppetational, fascinating. Uh, And I responded, we thought it would be a great idea and make total sense, said no one ever, is what I said. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, it's the show I never knew I needed. Um. And so she apparently uh, also watched uh, Voyager's Virtuoso, that episode, a few months ago mm-hmm. and freaked out when she realized Paul Williams was a guest star. Oh, yeah. And I told her that we have a Paul. We did the Paul Williams episode already. So she's checking it out. Absolutely, Check it out. And even cooler well, is this this person. Uh, Carrie is doing uh, her own podcast with her co-host, Justin, called Muppet Rewind, where they're going to go back and watch all the Muppet Show episodes. What? Yes. And they already did their All first right. episode. They recorded it, but I don't know if it's out yet. I need to check after we record this. But uh, Muppet Rewind, folks. Go Muppet check it Rewind. out. Muppet Rewind. Okay. Well, I'll just see if they're watching in the right order or not. Oh, the correct order. I mean the order I chose. <laughs> <laughs> Our arbitrary British UK we're just release stuck order. With it now. Like we're doing it by British release, whether it was released first or not. Whether it makes sense or not. That's how we started this trek. That's how we're going to end it. Oh, trek. Good job. <laughs> but they are Same a competition way. now. So actually, don't listen to that show. Go to hell. I'm just kidding. We'll have you on soon. It'll be lovely. <laughs> It'll be great. We should collaborate in the future. <laughs> It'll be fantastic. So this week on The Muppet Show, we have special guest star John Cleese. Who the hell is John Cleese. <laughs> well, it's John Cleese. <laughs> Aside from his humble beginnings as a founding member of one of the greatest gatherings of comedic talent in history and status <laughs> as a com- comedy icon, you likely don't know him from anything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was in films like A Fish Called Wanda, all the Monty Python movies, and The Adventures of Pluto Nash. He <laughs> <laughs> had to include that one. <laughs> He's if you look at his IMDb, it has had some truly high highs and some very low. <laughs> He'll take a paycheck where he can get it. Wa- he's always working. It's a mile long. <laughs> he has like seven interviews. He's been divorced so many times. He has to keep working no matter what because he's right. lost so much money. <laughs> uh, so this week on The Muppet Show on stage, Kermit introduced guest host John Cleese and almost has something heavy dropped on his head. It's kind of a weird bit. It feels more like a season one bit, honestly. <laughs> the opening number is Lubbock Lou and the Jug Huggers and his Jug Huggers. Sorry about that. They are the new jug band on the show this season, and they perform a jug band of the classic Somebody Stole My Gal. Up next, Gonzo tries to elevate the show by catching a bowling ball, which leaves his arms terribly stretched, long and disfigured. Following this is a Muppet News flash. A doctor figured out a way to synthesize food, and then it devolves into all these jokes about them knitting meatballs. Um, (laughs) For some reason. Yeah. 
Afterwards, Rolf and a chicken played the song Rolf's Polka is just how it's titled, uh, where the chicken hits the high notes as they play. And it's real cute. Then get a lovely little pigs in space where the swine trek is assaulted by a space pirate played by John Cleese and his less than supportive parrot who bicker throughout the encounter. It's like his girlfriend, too. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> next, we have at the dance where everyone tells a different version of the fly in the suit joke. All of them are equally lame, including a rare appearance from two waiters at the end who also dance together. Mm hmm. Uh, following, we get a musical number with a pregnant and wedding dress clad Miss Piggy singing Waiting at the Church, uh, the story of a trusting woman who was left at the altar by a terrible married man. Next, we get the uh, a switch out uh, where Robin ends up performing his number with Sweetums, Two Lost Souls, about friends finding each other and sticking together. And it's a real cute because they're such different sizes. It's real adorable. We then find ourselves on the planet Coosbane, where Kermit introduces a j creature in a jar called a spooble. Uh, and in the end, it ends up getting drank by a different alien creature <laughs> out of the jar. <laughs> Pretty horrific, actually. Uh, finally, we come to what is intended to be John's closing musical number. Only one problem. John refuses to do show tunes. Kermit calls uh, an audible and the number switches to a Viking opera. Uh, he then refuses to do that and is put into like an outrageous flamenco dance outfit with maracas. Uh, and he tries to leave and he gets kind of like tricked into a closing musical number <laughs> that ends with him being forcefully shaken by sweet. <laughs> uh, backstage this week, John Cleese is literally tied up at the beginning of the show and Scooter assures him that he can't leave until he's done the show. The remainder of the black backstage plot uh, centers around Gonzo now having these long arms as people like Floyd and Fozzie uh, make fun of him and Fozzie hangs clothes on him. Gonzo goes to John's dressing room to get him to help him. And it turns into this really great sketch of, of pulling arms to different lengths and legs, different lengths till at the end, all four of his limbs are exceptionally long and disfigured. It's funnier than I'm making it sound. It is really funny. Uh, finally, we come to the end where John Cleese plugs his new album, which is weird. John Cleese, a man and his music. And that is what we call The Muppet Show. Fantastico. What do you think of this episode? Uh, I have to say, this is my new favorite episode of The Muppet Show so far. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Even, even more than Pete Usnoff. Even more than Peter Usnoff, because I wow. think, because like, even though Peter Usnoff was such a great, he worked so well with The Muppets. John Cleese was a great foil to the Muppets because he was he plays that straight stiff upper lip British guy so well and he never broke character. He was totally like straight faced and just like and mm -hmm. just there the whole time. It was such a, it was so funny. I think he probably helped with a lot of the writing it felt like too. Um because most of his responses and the setups felt very Monty Python esque. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They did. Just very quick back and forths and silly puns and him just responding in funny ways and um just he's worked perfectly with them and the stretching gonzo scene was hilarious like this is a myth that i learned in the himalayas by tibetan monks or whatever and then <laughs> him that at the end not wanting to sing i was just i was laughing harder than i've ha have in yeah. any other episode so definitely my favorite so far what about you uh, i think for as far as the star i think this is you're absolutely right this is right on par with pu snuff yeah absolutely like right on par i think the I think maybe the backstage plot was a little bit lacking. It felt like they could have done more with the Gonzo long arm thing instead of just having Floyd and Fozzie make fun of him different ways repeatedly. That's true. It felt like because they really used it at the end with the with the stretching arm thing. They really used it. And so for them to like just make it a gag, like a, some people poking fun at him the whole time, I was like, come on. I guess it's we're made for it. Music. We're, we're made for it. Me Muppet wise was that the jug band I always love. So that was even better for yep. me um, Then the Sweetums Robin number was really cute because of the big and the small. 
Uh, and then just how they all came together as Muppets to like force this, you know, stiff British man just like, you're going to perform with us. You're going to sing this damn song. And it was so Him funny. In the outfit at the end with his arms being forcefully shaken as he shakes maracas. <laughs> and he looks so pissed off. He looks so pissed. I love it. It was, so it was just, yeah, that was just marvelous. It's just all culminated so wonderfully. Uh, what do you think was the best Muppeteering moment this week? I, I, for some reason, all this time, I had never noticed this happened before, even though it has to have already. Mm-hmm. But with Sweetums and Robin, I never noticed that the person playing Sweetums is in there. One arm obviously is being used and then the other mm-hmm. arm is being used to control the head and the expressions and stuff. And the other arms kind of limply is at the side. And then while dancing, you suddenly notice the other arm is now articulated. And so I never oh, yeah. really noticed that the person has to take their arm out of the head, put it back into the left arm and then start dancing. And then once they're done, very seamlessly take it out of the left arm, put it back up in the head to manipulate the head again. I'm like, holy crap. I never thought about that or noticed that before. <laughs> that yeah, is just insane. Crazy. Like how they can control that at one time and think about all that is nuts. So that uh, just I, that might amaze me. I've got to give it this week to the, the Muppet, the Gonzo John Cleese with the stretching arms. Oh. Cause I'm just thinking about all the extra fabric that was sitting under that table that they then had to coordinate and That's pull true. At the same rate. It was being lived out to make sure that the bit looked right and communicated right. You know, That's true. That was, that was great. That's a lot That's of work. Great. So tell us about the, the songs we've heard in this episode. Ooh, somebody stole my gal performed by Lubbock Lou and the drug huggers. Uh, and uh, it was uh, from a, 1924 written by a guy named Leo Wood and had a five week run at number one. Uh, and it was featured in a movie that you and I actually revert, reviewed on a play on nerds huh. podcast years ago, Melinda, Melinda, which you did not like at all. Really? Oh, I can't even remember that. Was that the theater movie? Uh, someone with like two playwrights telling a story and has the inconceivable guy in it. Yes. <laughs> and Will Ferrell who plays Woody Allen. I didn't hate it. It was just all right. You did not care for it. <laughs> I didn't care for it. Uh, after this, Rolf's Polka, written by Derek <laughs> Scott, who we've actually mentioned before. He was a music associate for the Muppets for a few years and wrote songs like Sweet Tooth Jam, which we heard way back in season one, and like the theme for Pigs in Space. Mm. Waiting at the Church is a British music hall song from the early 1900s, and it was originally made famous by a woman named Vesta Victoria who had her own man and money woes. She am- amassed a crazy fortune in the 20s, like insane by our standards. Um, but by the time of her death, she had almost nothing because she had a crazy high-profile jewelry heist against her at one point mm. uh, and was known for taking like young boy toy lovers who t- really took advantage of her, her money. <laughs> uh, two Lost Souls from the Broadway classic Damn Yankees. Uh, and I did not realize this, but Damn Yankees is based off a novel. I didn't know that either. The year the Yankees lost the pennant. <laughs> and <Sports>. the impossible <laughs> dream right at the end from Mana La Mancha. Oh, I love that uh, song. Who had a crazy original Broadway run that ran for 2,328 performances. Jesus. And has been revived on Broadway four times. Wow. Just crazy. But Jarman, tell us about this week's. The original series episode we watched. Absolutely. So this week we have City on the Edge of Forever, which is rated by some fans to be the number one episode of Star Trek ever, which is, you know, building it up quite a bit. But we have the Enterprise investigating a planet that seems to be emitting time distortions and a huge distortion rocks a bridge and causes the oh so fragile control panels to blow up in Sulu's face, which they always are blowing up all the time. And he's knocked to the ground unconscious. Uh, Bones comes in and gives him a shot of Cordrazine, 
which apparently is some dangerous drug, but something that will save Sulu's life in a very small dose. Uh, So Sulu is saved and he smiles. He's back up and working. Uh, But then another distortion rocks the bridge and Bones accidentally injects himself with a huge dose of the drug, causing him to lose his mind with paranoia and start breaking out in hives and going crazy. So he runs off the bridge to the transporter room where he knocks out the engineer and transports right down to the planet where this time distortions are emanating from. So Kirk, Spock, Uhura and Scotty and a couple of red shirts, they go down to find him on the planet and they find the source of the time distortions. And among the ruins, it's in this planet. It's this giant gateway of living rock and it starts to speak to them. And it says that it is the sentient guardian of forever. It says that it is a doorway to any time and any place. Um, and they had temporarily found bones on the planet. But once he hears that this gateway can take him away in his very paranoid state, he jumps through the gateway, which randomly sends him back to 1930 New York City. <laughs> so they suddenly, when he does that, discover that the Enterprise above them is gone. Uh, and the Guardian tells them that when Bones went back in time, he must have changed something. So now their lives as they know it no longer exist. Uh, and the Enterprise is gone. They have no idea what's going on. So they ask the Guardian to let them go back and try to stop Bones from changing the past. And it lets them do that. And Kirk and Spock jump in after him to 1930. So Kirk and Spock steal some clothes to blend in. And then they run into Edith Keeler in a basement played by Joan Collins. Woo. Um, Big star, man. Yeah. And she runs a homeless mission there and says she'll let them stay there and earn money if they help clean and work the food lines at the food mission. So while they're working for little bits of money, Spock tries to cobble together uh, parts to alter his tricorder to allow them to better tell when exactly Bones will arrive because he's not even there yet. They actually got there before him and what he might have changed in the past so that they can stop him. So while Spock is working to save history, Kirk just gets busy falling in love with Edith Keeler, as he usually does. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she seems to be way ahead of her time in thinking about the possibilities of the future and space <clears throat> and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, very H.G. Wells. Yeah, and they're also very hippie, you know, peace and harmony, blah, blah, blah kind of thing. But <laughs> it kind of reminds me of uh, the woman in Back to the Future 3 in the 1800s. She's, you know, loves her oh, science yeah. fiction and everything. Anyway. Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, love her. So Bones finally arrives in some alleyway, but he's still crazy and he stumbles into the mission eventually after killing a homeless person by accident. Um, and Edith finds him and she brings him back to health. But Kirk and Spock don't even know he's there yet because he's in a different room. So Spock finally finishes altering his tricorder so he can find out what happened. And it, he figures out that if uh, Edith Keeler survives, she starts this pacifist movement. And then we get into World War II too late and the Nazis win everything. So it must be her that brought them to this point in time. She's kind of a focal point. And somehow mm. Bones being here saves her life. And they must not allow that to happen. Otherwise, World War II goes off course and we never have the Enterprise or Federation. Right. So this is very depressing to Kirk because he's now fallen in love with Edith. Um, so she has to die. Yeah, she has to die. The famous line from Spock. So Keith and uh, Keith, I mixed Kirk and Edith together for Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, that's their couple name. Uh, Kirk and Edith head out to a movie. uh, And on the way, Edith mentions Bones in conversation. And Kirk is like, Bones is here? So he's like, wait here. And he runs back across the street to go to the mission to tell Spock. But then Bones and Spock come out. They all hug. They're like, hey, you're here. And Edith is all happy and wants to go join them. And so she crosses the street and a truck is steaming towards her. um, And Kirk stops himself from saving her in pain and anguish. And he has to stop Bones from, from saving her as well. And the truck runs her over. Oh, and it's so sad. And Bones is pissed off because he stopped him. But he, he's like, oh, trust me, you don't understand. They go back to the portal. 
history's now fixed. The Guardian says many such journeys are possible. And Kirk just says, let's get the hell out of here. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> so, Steve, what do you think of sitting on the edge of forever? Um, I think all those Star Trek fans are wrong. Mm. I feel like I've watched many episodes that are far better than this one so far. Really? The premise was so confused. So this is how I knew it was going to be bad. <laughs> so normally in Star Trek, the bigger and crazier the premise is, the quicker they brush over it. Mm, that's, that's true. They're like, oh, yeah, that's just a fact that when you go backwards around the sun twice, you turn into an egg. <laughs> All right, let's live in that reality. When it was like 15 minutes, in, like 10 minutes in, they hadn't even traveled back in time yet. I was like, oh, no, they're really trying to take us through this one. This is going to be bad. And I was right. There was not, nothing happened. In the, you're right. It was all full of just Shatner doing lovely little walks and having doing deep eye string. There was not enough plot or direct conflict on the planet to make it worth the episode. Interesting. That's that's honestly my take. I can think of many other episodes that I find much more enjoyable than this one. I think what maybe some fans like about it and what I kind of like about it is that you get to live with Kirk and Spock in this time period for a while and see what they'd have to do if they had to just blend in for a while and not really start to stay out of the limelight and not get noticed, you know, and it's kind of interesting to watch them do that. But I see what you mean, how there's not like any direct conflict happening during that time period. But Right. But you, you know, if, <clears throat> yeah, all it would take is them appearing and some pesky local sheriff who doesn't like new people in town causing trouble. Yeah. And he arrests Kirk and just another, some other for, force to drive it a little bit. Well, that kind of happened when they went back in time to that, uh, that air force base or whatever. Right. Yeah. There was yeah. like con conflict the whole time. Yeah. That being said, the time travel there, that was one of those ones where maybe this one, they took us too much through it, but that one, it was like, wait, what happened? So did he beam back in the exact time and place or did his consciousness like that one we literally <laughs> couldn't figure out how they oh yeah they put this the pilot one, back like, yeah this is a magic talking portal to go anywhere in time i guess <laughs> yeah watching this again i haven't seen it in a while i didn't realize it took that long for them to go back in time in the episode i i assume most of the episode was in the past but no right. like maybe half of it or something or maybe you just, know a third of it, it just, was in the you know future yeah but it just didn't yeah i just i Sure, it's a good episode. Why not? But it's not a so bad episode. For so many people to agree that it's like the best one, I'm like, why are you? Did you want? Did we watch the same thing? <laughs> I don't even think it's the best episode of the original series, but it's definitely not the best episode of all of Star Trek. There's better Next Generation, better D Space Nine episodes right. than this. Uh, so I think that's kind of crazy. But it's, it, I think it's a very qual good quality episode. I, I love episodes that just take you off of random paper mache planets and off of the, you know, just the enterprise. So I think that's kind of neat in itself. I don't know. And maybe I'll appreciate this more because there is not a lot of this kind of stuff in Star Trek. Like the, you know, we went down to a wild West town kind of stuff. There's it's right. one in every seven episodes. So not that much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just realistically. <laughs> it's, true. it's just, it's just the backlots they could schedule. I, I recognize It's always that. wild that's West. How, yeah. That's how Hollywood worked. I get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't care. Whereas this uh, set was actually Mayberry. Oh, okay. There's actually, they found that out because the, the Floyd's barbershop right there is the same barbershop. Desi Lou Studios. Yeah. So they had actually schedule around episodes of, um, uh, what do you call it? Anna Griffith show. Nice. So yeah, it's interesting. 
Well, Jordan, do we have some factoids? We do. So, yeah, send us your hate mail, folks, for that. <laughs> uh, for I mean. Steve not being on board. But my girlfriend actually watched it. She uh, had has not seen much Star Trek, and she really enjoyed the episode. So uh, uh, that's just putting that out there. All right, so mm-hmm. trivia. Uh, when William Shatner and Joan Collins are walking together in the street, they pass in front of a shop with the name Floyd's Barbershop. I already talked about that. Mayberry, love it. Yep. Uh, Gene Roddenberry apparently denied Harlan Ellison's pseudonym request. Now, we should get some backstory here. Harlan Ellison was a big-time uh, sci-fi writer at the time, only in his late 30s, actually, um, who went on to die, I think, only two years ago. Um, but he was actually writing this episode. They were very excited about having a popular science fiction writer to write the episode. But he apparently hated how it was turning out. So he wanted his name taken off of it. But Gene Roddenberry had a power to refuse that. Say, no, we're putting your name. On it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it actually had different several people rewrote it um, in that time, including Gene L. Kuhn, the producer. And then finally, mm-hmm. um, D.C. Fontana, uh, who's a big time writer of Star Trek. was, a, And she rewrote most of it, actually. And only two lines survived from the original Harlan Ellison teleplay, which was since before your son burned hot in space, since before your race was born, time has resumed its shape. Those are only two <laughs> lines that are from him. Nice. I mean, if you're going to keep two, those are the ones. Those are the ones. Uh, and this is the most expensive episode to have ever been filmed with the original series besides the pilots where they actually had to build all the sets initially, right. you know, uh, which was $245,000. That's wow. a lot of money back then. Yeah. So, uh, Gene L. Kuhn was responsible for the com- comedic episodes of the episode, parts of the episode, which were mostly racist, like the rice picker scene. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, well, Harlan Ellison apparently hated those parts. So that's, that's good. Good on his part. Um, this, the footage seen through the portal as times quickly going through the portal were all scenes lifted from Paramount films that they had rights to, Perfect. which is kind of funny. And for the last thing, uh, Harlan Ellison originally said he wanted the architecture of the city they find there to be covered with strange runes, but they misheard him and thought he said ruins. So that's why there's the whole the whole planets in ruins, like with, you know, ruined architecture and stuff. So I just thought that was funny, but he's like, actually, that looks pretty good. But I, I wanted I wanted runes, not ruins. That's pretty good, though. <laughs> yeah. High fives. Yeah. So that's pretty much how that worked out. Uh, so we have any Trek connection, Muppet connections this week. Oh, boy, do I. Uh, in a 711 page economic report released in 2019 by the Trump administration, a credit page <laughs> that is typically reserved for interns included, uh, some famous names, including, uh, John Cleese and Captain Janeway. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. So John Cleese and Captain Janeway are both on the credits page for the 2019 economic report. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Intern pranks. <laughs> uh, Ian Ray, who has worked on Star Trek The Next Generation, he is tall and lanky and often appears in prosthetics or as an alien, also acts as a body double for tall, lanky actors, including John Cleese at one point. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, John Cleese was in the movie Rat Race, which featured Whoopi Goldberg, who later played Gaiden on The Next Generation. And Joan Collins, uh, played what, Edith Keeler, uh-huh. all right? Yep. She was also in the Flintstone movie sequel, Viva Rock Vegas, <laughs> whose creature effects were done by the Jim Henson Company. The oh, Jim creature shop. well, look at that. And she made an appearance on German television uh, in 2017 with Ernie and Bert. Oh, that's even more direct connection. There we go. Well, look at that. <laughs> so, so let's talk some similarities. Yeah. Mm. These are the same episode, right? Same thing. Yeah, I mean, these are basically the same show. Uh, John Cleese can't leave until he's done the show and Kirk and Spock can't leave until they fix the past. 
<laughs> the Muppet Newsflash talks about a food shortage and Edith Keeler talks about how they will solve food shortages in the future. I was really hoping that um, the synthesizer, the syndicator, whatever the hell it is, would be somewhere in this episode because I was like, yeah, them knitting meatballs together. I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> that's true with matter. <laughs> Damn them. Uh, both feature time period costume changes. Kirk and Spock into their 30s garb, garb and Cleese into a Viking. And related to that, Fozzie uses Gonzo's arm as a clothesline. And clotheslines also get a big part guest spot on the city of the edge of forever as they take the clothes off the clothesline. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's all I've got. Uh, and they also the Coosbane jar of liquid one. is a strange being on a strange planet that we've never encountered before, just like the Guardian on the planet of the edge of forever. Okay. I like that. Yeah. It all makes sense. Oh, no. Oh, God. What's that noise? The inertial dampeners. <laughs> So this is part of the show, the transporter malfunction, where we transport one character from one episode to the other episode for no reason. So what you got for us, Steve? <laughs> so from Trek's, uh, Trek to Muppet this week, I've got the hobo stealing the milk uh, coming over and he drinks the spooble out of the jar. <laughs> so the interview would end with like him wandering and be like, everyone going to have this? Ah, no, no. <laughs> and then he disintegrates from eating it or something. Yeah. Uh, I would love for John Cleese to transport over to play Bones because he would be so great in those hysterical moments, like when he's going nuts, <laughs> Assassin. but also really good when he calms down and is really coy and incredulous with uh, Edith Keeler. I think he'd be really good at that. Uh, from the Muppets to Trek, I've got the Jug Huggers coming and replacing all the hobos at the mission <laughs> just because they have a very similar visual look. That I had the homeless guys in the mission going over to become the Jug Band. <laughs> I was like, that's obscure. Steve will never do that. You're right. I didn't. <laughs> Damn, we did the opposite. They just transported into each other. It was great. It worked out that's perfectly. Right. <laughs> All right. So I guess that about does it for the episode 28 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for the Muppet Show with special guest Nancy Walker. And original series episode, the last of season one, Operation Annihilate. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. <laughs>